Can He Do That is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. The primaries for the 2018 midterm elections are upon us. Starting now, there are primaries basically every week for the next several months. And yes, the president is not on the ballot. But the war over the House and the Senate and all of these governorships around the country, it has everything to do with Donald Trump. And it's going to be meaningful whether Republican candidates choose to align themselves with the president or whether they stay far away. I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. As primaries heat up around the country in the coming weeks, we wanted to give you a lay of that landscape. What races are critical to watch and how to interpret the results, what issues to pay attention to, and how to know what all of this means for the parties and for the president. And to do that, we wanted to do something a little bit different and sit down and just talk about, like, what is going on here? So we went to national political correspondent David Weigel. He's been covering many of the competitive races around the country. And he sat down to talk with us about the strategies of the Democrats and the Republicans, like which primary elections are the ones to watch and why this election season is different from what we've seen before. We started our discussion by talking about this one specific issue that keeps coming up again and again. Nancy Pelosi, former Speaker of the House, current minority leader. And somehow this inside baseball question of whether or not she'll seek the speakership if Democrats take back the House, that's become this huge sticking point in the Democrats' strategy for the midterms. So what's going on with that? And why do people care so much whether Nancy Pelosi is Speaker? There are two reasons for that. One is that it's unusual for a speaker to lose an election and stick around, period. It's very unusual for someone to do what Pelosi did, which is lose the 2010 election, then gain some seats in 12, lose some seats in 14, gain some seats in 16, but still not win back the majority and refuse to leave. Uh, so there is a sense among House Democrats that she's very good at her job, but, but that she has hung on for longer than even she thought she was going to. She assumed Hillary Clinton be elected president. She'd be retiring right now. There'd be in some open race in San Francisco for her seat. So the first thing is, yeah, there is a sense among, a real sense among Democrats that she's been there too long. The second thing is that Republicans are very open in saying that until the tax cut becomes incredibly popular, which has not yet, it could, it could always do that. Uh, their number one issue in the election is warning people, warning Republican voters, if they don't vote, Pelosi's going to be speaker and the Democrats are going to impeach Trump. That's That's kind of the crux of their message for for the midterms. And there are Democrats who nervously would like to at least take one of those issues out of there, but they'd like to take both. I mean, I talk to Democratic candidates all the time who respond to both of those by uh, either dodging or saying they're not going to do it. And so you have this paradox where Pelosi is very secure in power in the House right now, but I, I literally can't find any Democratic candidate in a swing seat who will say flat out, yes, I'm going to vote for her. And it feels like that also says something about just the Democrat strategy in general and the fact that there doesn't seem to be a coherent message about what it means to be a Democrat at this moment for this election. Let's see. I was this week in two seats that voted for Trump in North Carolina. They were drawn to elect Republicans. Uh, in both cases, the Democrats are running as basically the uh, the candidates who will protect and expand Medicare, who will protect Social Security from this theoretical threat of uh, the deficits uh, inspiring Republicans to start cutting away at it, and who will repeal some of the tax cuts, 
uh, you start there. And so from place to place, Democrats are also for things like marijuana decriminalization. Most candidates are just running on, uh, we're going to protect the social insurance you have and make it better. And that's pretty coherent. I mean, from race to race, people are pretty worried about that. The thing with Pelosi is that she... There's, there's, she's still kind of clashing with some of the people in the party where there are Democrats who want to come out with more coherent plans and say, for example, if we win the House, we're going to pursue universal Medicare buy-in. Every candidate should run on that. It's popular. And Pelosi still, I think in, this is a thing that irritates the younger progressives who are, have no problem with, they're not worried that she's too far left or not at all. They, they worry that she's not imagined enough. Uh, they think she's kind of holding that back by trying to come out with a perfect messaging for the party. Um, that is that can brand it like they did in 2006. And a lot of these Democrats say, well, that's not how things work anymore. You have to let people run their own races. And, and so a lot of the new generation talk is this, that the party does have ideas, but you have a leader who's just so cautious and they're tired of that. They've got their own election agenda that doesn't really involve her. So how about the Republicans? What are they doing right now to either distance themselves from President Trump to, you know, put themselves in closer proximity to, to President Trump? Mm-hmm. What is their strategy here? Well, they're not doing much of the former. They're really not distancing themselves from the president. Again, I was in North Carolina this week, one district kind of south of Charlotte, one one north of Charlotte. In the in the first one, <laughs> the, the congressman's facing a primary against another Republican, and they both have... All their literature is about how much they support the president. Pictures of them with the president, how pictures of them at rallies with the president, et cetera. A, a thing about midterm elections that is always forgotten, it's not 100% of the country that's voting. It's more like 40%, <laughs> if that. Uh, so all Republicans are trying to do is get their loyal voters out. Uh, and that would be, you know, maybe half as many <laughs> as voted in 2016. The thing that they worry about is Democrats exciting their base and turning them all out. But there's there's nothing they can do about that. <laughs> like they they risk much more if they agree to create a special council and our special council look at whether people giving money to Mar-a-Lago or getting special access to Trump or even opening the access records of Mar-a-Lago in the White House. A lot more to risk because then you go home and your Republican voters will say you're helping the fake news uh, leftist media <laughs> attack our president. Uh, so, yeah, there's very little separation from the president. And that's it's surprising because uh, having covered 2010, you saw a ton of Democrats, even those who would voted for the ACA, would cast a couple of votes to say we're not like that. We're not like Obama on everything. You can trust us. We're, we're still the same congressman you elected in this reddish seat or the swing seat. Not seeing that with Republicans at all, uh, with the exception of a couple guys who will vote on a climate change bill <laughs> the, the wrong way versus, uh, against their party uh, and get some credit. You know, they, everyone, this especially Carlos Cabrillo from Miami, I think has gotten millions of dollars in air cover from people thanking him for his votes for bills that have no chance in the Republican House. Uh, That's it. There's like five of these people. So what you're saying is that there's more to gain from sort of hewing to the more conservative end because those are the people who are more likely to come out than trying to go for some middle ground of people who probably won't end up showing up anyways because they're not that excited. Well, and you saw it this week where Speaker Ryan was was telling people the Milken Milken Conference of California, uh, boy, if the Democrats win, there's going to be the subpoenas and they'll shut the work of government down. But even he is saying we need to keep the House because otherwise they'll investigate the president. And this is somebody, to, to my surprise, who keeps getting imbued with this theory. Maybe this is the day. This is the week that, that Ryan's going to oppose Trump. No, to the he understands. You just need to get your base out. And the base wants no harm whatsoever to come to the president. But I'm, I, I still find that surprising just because, you know, I think that, for example, the Alabama Senate special election, I wonder why Republicans aren't more nervous about that happening again, happening in other states. 
Uh, so the theory, again, everything comes down to this, who is going to turn the election. They think they have enough human beings uh, to vote Republican in districts and states that skew Republican. They think they can pull it off. That's their thinking. It's not you see a generic ballot poll where Trump's at 40 percent. They don't they don't buy it. And I think they're right to not entirely buy it because he's at 40 percent nationally. Well, there's no national Senate election. <laughs> Senate elections in Missouri and Indiana and West Virginia, et cetera. And so when, it, when they lose something, they've been pretty good at saying, oh, it was a fluke. In Pennsylvania, retroactively, they decided that, well, there's not going to be many candidates like Connor Lamb, and there's not going to be many Republicans as bad as Rick Saccone. In Alabama, they said, well, we're more. That was, that's never going to happen again. That was a fluke. They, actually, I was surprised. Last week, the Republicans held on to the Trent Frank seat in Arizona by five points. I think when Arizona takes forever to count ballots, it'll be about five points. Uh, their own polling said it, they were going to win by like eight to ten. And that actually I found uh, – not spin. <laughs> like, I found more Republicans worrying about the close win in Arizona than I did worrying about Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, they said, well, it's a fluke. Arizona was the f- first example in a while where they said, oh, that shouldn't have been a loss. And actually, the only Republican I see, another guy from Wisconsin who is very honest about this, is Scott Walker. I think part of when he says there's a blue wave coming, he's trying to get Republicans to do- donate and sign up and volunteer, et cetera. I think he's also honest. I mean, he's He's one of the more politically honest <laughs> Republican politicians there is. I mean, he's said lots of – he's explained why, you know, anti-union measures are good for the Republicans' long run, things like that, right? And he has said, uh, look at – I spent my Supreme Court race in my state. Like every Democrat voted and our people weren't coming out. So some of these guys are worried about it. The overall theory is we're going to keep our voters in their her- hermetically sealed – cube where, and say that everything bad about the president's fake, please just turn out and vote. I want to keep talking about the Arizona special election sure. because, um, you know, you'd said that it's interesting that Republicans, even though Republicans won, that a lot of them aren't happy about it. Mm-hmm. Do you see there this sense of maybe Republicans might be less scared than they need to be and that you have these few people who are warning about a blue wave, but mm-hmm. an, a special election victory uh, like we saw just recently, might not send out that warning message? Uh, yeah, I, I go out every time there's a recess to see if they're afraid or not. And I should say there are very few Republican incumbents who are acting like they're, they're fine. Even if they say they're fine, you'll check their schedule and they're doing a lot more time back home meetings with cops and uh, with uh, Ted Budd in North Carolina, who's in the district that was because of the, the gerrymander was, I think it was a nine-point Trump win, but the closest margin in, in North Carolina. And he has been, when I was with him, he was he would start his day at 5.30 a.m. and finish it sometime in the evening and do nonstop events, get himself out there, make sure media was there to cover him, meeting tons of people, walking, managing to show, show up early and uh, for every event despite staying late to shake hands at them. Uh, that's the model. They're not all like that. There are Republicans who I think are going to say that everything's going to be right. And um, the Republican Party also has this two-step argument, which is, one, Democrats are pathetic and have no money. We have all the money. We're going to out-organize them. Two, Democrats are terrifyingly organized, and you need to turn out to vote. That's like, I like where Scott Walker's coming from. I think he he encapsulates both, but he's very honest about them. Whereas the Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chairman, her job is to say that they're losers, even if, as (laughs) they're down a House seat and a Senate seat and and a governor and 40 state legislative seats, and she still pretends it's all okay.
Can He Do That is sponsored by Zeal. Want to know the only thing better than getting a massage? Getting a massage in the comfort of your own home. Introducing Zeal. Bring the spa to you and try Zeal today. Right now, go to zeal.com and enter promo code Can He Do That to get $20 off your first in home massage. That's code Can He Do That. There's one trend that appeared during the election that really surprised me. Michael Shear, one of the political reporters here, he wrote a story recently about how there are all these candidates running for office who've been convicted of a federal crime. There's former Congressman Michael Grimm of New York, who was convicted for hiring undocumented workers, hiding $900,000 from tax authorities, and making false statements under oath. And now he's running to be elected back into office. And then there's Don Blankenship in West Virginia, who recently spent a year in prison for conspiring to violate mine safety laws. He's running for the Senate. And then there's Joe Arpaio, the sheriff from Arizona. He failed to follow a judicial order that would have curtailed his efforts for immigration enforcement. And then he was convicted on a misdemeanor contempt of court charge. Now he's been pardoned by Trump and he's running for the Senate and he has respectable poll numbers. In the past, these kinds of wrongdoings used to be a deal breaker for politicians. Like an indictment was an immediate cue to resign from office and never come back. I talked to David Weigel about that. Multiple candidates facing corruption charges that in previous elections would have been sort of disqualifying. But in this election seems to be kind of a, mm-hmm. a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about well, that and how that's playing complete out? complete reflection of, of the president. A uh, thing I think is important about this president and his, his psychological effect on the party is that he can say, I think, and it, it's honest, that on election day, most people thought he'd lose and he won. And I've uh, been to lots of Republican events. Actually, ironically enough, I was at a Rick Saccone event in Pennsylvania's 18th district where he walked through election night. He's like, we all remember what it was like. They turned on TV and they said the president was, uh, that Donald Trump couldn't win and then he won. So there is this sense you hit a home run once and you assume like, well, next time I'm up there, I'm going to hit just nothing but home runs. Uh, there is this, this confidence because you got this president who uh, did what they said was impossible. And I think one reason the Democrats have comfortably moved to the left in a lot of ways is they just read the election very differently. They say, well, everything broke his way. <laughs> our campaign was hacked three times. And I don't email released. The FBI launched an investigation that came to the last minute, and Trump can only pull off 46 percent of the vote. So our party clearly has numbers out there that don't like this, beyond don't like the president, actually agreed with a pretty le- a pretty liberal platform in, in 2016. Uh, so the parties are both, in, in a way I, I have not seen before, and you know, I've covered this stuff since 2006, basically. Uh, they're just different realities. <laughs> the, the Democrats think, even if they re- they're saying in public, we're very worried we're going to blow it. Uh, the ones out there campaigning are very confident. They just, you know, if they campaign, they're repeat candidates who ran in 16 or run again now on, you know, things that used to attract five volunteers will attract 50. They, they definitely see it. Whereas Republicans are like, well, media said we we're going to lose last time we didn't, so we're fine. <laughs> you find that a lot. How do you think that will actually play out in the election? I mean, are these going to be mm-hmm. these candidates with these corruption charges? Yeah. Are they going to end up still being uh, successful candidates? Yeah, well, I don't think uh, Don Blankenship is the best candidate for that. This is the coal magnate in West Virginia who went to jail literally the first day of the out of his halfway house, began running for Senate. Uh, 
So he's another guy who said, oh, well, you know, everyone says Trump would lose and the media came after Trump. And uh, when I talk about the different realities, the, the, the point I make is that when you have a president saying the media can't be trusted because they got my election wrong, you can say as a Republican, well, that media you don't trust also says I'm, I'm corrupt. And it says that my trial was uh, my fault or I'm, I'm telling you it was Barack Obama's DOJ and, and Obama's judges. So. Well, who are you going to believe? <laughs> That's why they're getting, I think, further than previous candidates. Same thing with Mike Flynn campaigning in Montana. Mike Flynn is going to go for a Senate candidate who, you know, for my reading of the polls, which gets back to the whole whether he got 2016 right or wrong question, uh, you know, he's not going to win the nomination. But the guy's comfortable bringing him there because part of the Mike Flynn defense is that uh, the media is fake. The media got the 2016 election wrong. Uh, I'm being railroaded. Uh, I'm going to get a pardon at some point, and then I'll be vindicated. And so... Just in the conservative atmosphere, which is very, which is full of what's pumped out by Fox News and by talk radio and by conservative websites, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, like that's that's very it's very easy to to march in along with that. That stream of thinking is very easy to jump into. Well, okay, I'm a Republican voter. I don't trust the media. I don't trust the judges. They're all mean to Trump. Oh, and they're mean to this guy too. So whatever, you know. And that that happened in Alabama. The Democrats who were more worried about Alabama, even after they won, said, "Geez, why?" Imagine <laughs> that 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 election happening in another state. Like, what's what's wrong with us that we only won by one point? And the thing that reminds me of, frankly, is that I've covered urban politics. Uh, the mayor of Philadelphia in two thousand three, right before his reelection, the FBI announced it was probing him, and he won a big by a bigger margin. Like, there there are voters who are inclined to believe that there is a conspiracy against their their candidates. So for people who are trying to track what's going to be happening in November, what are three good races to watch that will maybe indicate what's going to go down mm-hmm. in the election? I think the race for governor of Michigan, both in the primary and in the general election, is going to be very telling because this is a state that voted. My, one of my factors I was bringing up is Trump got less of the vote there than George W. Bush did in 2004 when he lost it. I mean, it went Republican be partly because of the third party vote, Republicans have convinced themselves it is now a red state. It has gone red. I think that race is going to most likely pit uh, an attorney general who ran as a Trump ally who will never abandon him versus a Democratic state senator who's going to have a lot of, of organizing support. Uh, it's a state Democrats have not won in a midterm in a quite a long time, uh, but that they might pull off now. And, and also just the way they campaign is going to be interesting there because they need to excite uh, a black voter base that kind of tuned out in 2016. They also need to need to figure out how they're going to navigate around, you know, the state trying to put me- work requirements on Medicaid and things like that. And in in some ways, trade policies, they're going to they're be hurting the parts of the state that swung most Republican. So I think the Michigan governor's race, I think the Senate race in Florida, because you have a pretty replacement level Democratic senator, uh, Bill Nelson, who is fine and popular, but has never you know, never been seen as Democrats by, as a comer. And you have Rick Scott, who has infinite money and dies the president. Uh, I think that one's going to be interesting. Well, everyone's already looking at it. But the, the race for Senate in Texas is fascinating to people because both Senate and governor's races, are, the Democrats are polling closer than they polled in statewide elections in Texas since the first term of George Bush. I mean, I, think I, I checked. It was better work as in was has been in single digits behind Ted Cruz, and no Democrat's been that close in Senate race since 2002. Um, but what makes it interesting is that this again is a state that has where the president is not terribly popular, but you have a dormant base of a, of, of voters, especially around the Rio Grande Valley, uh, 
in some of the cities, uh, and you have old Democrats in East Texas who've bailed long ago. You just have voters who Republicans count on not voting in a midterm, and the entire Democratic strategy is taking a year to excite them. We're going to have a pragmatic progressive agenda. If we're if we're in, we're going to roll back a lot of refusal to expand Medicaid, things like that. We're going to ha- have a different vision for the state that's going to benefit you. And they have not tried something that explicit before. Any level of excitement in midterm, I think, is worth following. And there's a lot in Texas for Democrats. Last question. Mm-hmm. If you had to put money on it, do you think that the House or the Senate or both are going to flip in November? Well, I mean, I think if it was today, the House would flip uh, in part because I don't think Democrats have been negatively defined the way Republicans think they're going to define them. Uh, For the reasons I was saying before, they have an electorate that's not super animated by the tax cuts. They have an electorate that's animated more by supporting the president who is not popular in these districts. And also they have Democrats who, I I mean, uh, I I differ from a lot of people who cover these elections. uh, I differ from a lot of reporters, I think. I don't think Democrats need some popular agenda where everything pulls at 70 percent. They need a couple of issues where they're asked about it. But from race to race, every Democrat I cover um, is pretty competent at explaining how, well, all right, the economy is good, but you're still getting screwed over on, on Medicare premiums. And, hey, you're a pro-choice suburban mom who usually votes Republican. Look at they're doing in terms of gag rules on Planned Parenthood and things like that. They've just got such a cocktail of issues that I think are appealing to the voters they that sat home or lost, that I, th- I'm pr- I think today they would win the House. Now, that's Republicans are going to spend, you know, half a billion dollars trying to change that. But they haven't been very successful so far. They, they get a lot of attention for, for example, AFP, America's Prosperity is doing like a $20 million door-to-door tax cut promotion campaign. And uh, the American Action Network is doing, I think it's done $30 million of ads for the tax cut. The tax cut's less popular than it was in January. So they there might be a marginal u- <laughs> the marginal utility of these these ads might be might be lower than they think it is, uh, and I, I, it's really the final thing I think is just to, I always return <laughs> to this like especially whenever I'm traveling I listen to conservative talk radio because I think here is what Republican voters and politicians are seeing and it's very different than the voters who they lost and they are not hearing about the uh, issues they for example for the Senate races they, they I think. They're convinced that the conservative judges are, are a home run, that this guy point all these judges. I, I think there are some that are going to be problematic if they're pushed in a state like Ohio. You know, do you, you know, you'd vote for this judge who would vote to get rid of all public sector unions, as I think might happen this year. Things like that. I, just, I think they just haven't figured out where the electorate's head is at because Trump's one was so surprising that it seemed to alter reality for, for, for them. And I don't think it altered <laughs> I don't think it altered everyone's reality. I think it altered his reality for one day and <laughs> he got, got very lucky. But it hasn't changed the, the fundamentals of where the country is. Maybe. Or maybe not. That's one of the big questions we'll be asking over the course of this midterm season. Not just who's going to win and who's going to lose, but has Donald Trump changed the fundamentals of this country and who we want our leaders to be? Thanks for listening to Can He Do That from The Washington Post. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out previous episodes at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts, or find us anywhere else that you listen. Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks, logo art from Lauren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels. Special thanks to David Weigel for help with this episode. 
do that, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, Rediscovered. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.